Welcome to this episode of Nuance, a podcast that encourages Christ followers to live faithfully at work, especially in regard to the hot topics of the public square. This season, we're exploring the ever-growing issue of gender identity. As Christ followers, we have to do better and be better, while confidently knowing that the gospel speaks to our most difficult conversations. My name is Case Thorpe. On behalf of my co-host, Crossland Stewart, and myself, welcome to Nuance. Well, I want to welcome today's guest, Scott Saul. Scott, thank you for being with us. It's good being with you all. Thanks, Case. As I mentioned earlier to our listeners, Scott's the senior pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Married, father of two girls, a disciple of Tim Keller's, worked with him for many years at Redeemer in New York, and a prolific writer. His sixth book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, just out this past June. We'll have a link in our show notes. And I believe uh, Crossland Stewart, my colleague who's here today. Welcome, Crossland. Hey, good to be here. You've got a copy of Scott's book. Hold that up for us. I do. It's a great book. Yeah, so if you're watching with us on YouTube, you can see that cover. We'll certainly have a, a link to that in our show notes. So, um, Scott, I mean, you've been featured in a whole lot of places, Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine, Gospel Coalition. I follow you regularly on Twitter. Mm. And 45,000 Twitter followers? <laughs> Come on. I don't know. Um, how many of those are real? Uh, who, we, we, will ne- <laughs> we will never know how many of them are robots and how many of them are humans. Oh. We should ask Elon. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> now, how many um, of those followers came after you came to Christ Present Nashville? Oh, probably all of them almost. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I was kind of a late adopter with Twitter. Um, I'd just gotten on uh, toward the end of my days at Redeemer because a friend asked me to because it was another place where we could connect and Quick, sure. pithy ways. So, well, I, I'm reaching for a thousand on mine, and you know, <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever be at 45. But, well, I'm I'm grateful for you uh, to be here with us today. And so, um, Crossland's going to kick us off. Hey, Scott. Again, thank you for being here. Um, you know, it's really clear from your writings and uh, your experience that you have a great passion for the church. And for God's people. And so I would love for the audience to get to know you a little bit better. Could you tell us a little bit about how you became so interested in the church and uh, in some ways the culture as well? Sure. Thanks, Crossland. So um, I didn't grow up as a church kid and, um, you know, never, never heard the gospel until my senior year of high school, where a you know, a ministry staff member of a of a local kind of parachurch ministry um, walked me through the gospel, and it. I would say that that began a season of intrigue that never really took root until uh, toward the end of my college years, and um, became a Christian as a senior in college, and um, was at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, just. If anybody knows where that is, small, small, small school there. Um, And my call to gospel ministry and to the church 
uh, seems looking back like it came simultaneously to my call to faith. Um, you know, I was, I was this, this kid, you know, Ecclesiastes kid, I guess, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a comfortable environment with a lot of opportunity and, and, uh, those sorts of things and, and just never really, um, got to a point where I felt like I understood the meaning of life or the meaning of my life. And then everything seemed to click when, um, when Christ took over. And, um, from that point forward, the only thing I wanted to do was pastor a church. And the funny thing is I'd never been part of a church before. And so I I had no idea. Uh, I had no idea. Wow. Um, why that that desire was there? It was just there, and and so um, got into church life um, as a senior in college, and did seminary and everything else. And you know the the other irony of that whole thing of having zero background with church was that the two things I struggled with the most in um, you know any kind of academic setting or otherwise was public speaking and writing. And those are the two main things now that I do, um, which is just, I don't know, uh, the God's sense of humor, I guess, but, but, um, you know, I was terrified to speak publicly and just anything, anything I ever tried to write, I would get immediate writer's block and could never find words. And so uh, it's kind of, kind of funny looking back and to see where the journey has taken us. Scott, you said an Ecclesiastes kid. Mm-hmm. I think I know what you mean by that. Yeah. I think I might have been one too. What What did you mean by Ecclesiastes kid? Oh, well, you know, Ecclesiastes is that is that one book of the Bible um, that was not written by a person in prison under aggressive persecution, um, you know, in exile, et cetera. Um, awaiting their execution. Like this was a successful, powerful king uh, who had everything. He didn't just have a house. He had many houses. He didn't just have a pool. He had a lot of pools and gardens and, and everything. And, um, and he wasn't happy with it. He couldn't find joy. He couldn't, he, he had, he had not discovered that secret of contentment that Paul talks about in Philippians whether I'm living in want or in plenty, uh, content, contentment is a secret. Um, you know, all things through Christ who strengthens me is that secret. But, yeah. um, but I was that kid. I, I, you know, had a lot of opportunity. I was a, you know, one of the top basketball players in the state of Georgia. I won a state championship in tennis. So all my athletic goals were, were achieved academically, did well, had friends, lived in, you know, a, a pretty affluent community and kind of big man on campus and in high school and college. And it just didn't matter It all. It just felt like, like that line from Harold Abrams in chariots of fire. Um, you know, when he's about to run the hundred yard dash and win the gold medal, he, he says to himself, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And, you know, all my life I've been running and I don't know what I've been running for. I, that, that's a pretty good summary statement of to feel God's, to feel his pleasure. Yeah. Well, that was, that was Eric Liddell, but his, you know, wow. Harold Abrams was, was, um, you know, okay. he didn't have that. Uh, and I, right. I would say I was more in the Harold Abrams category as a kid and all through college until Christ came into the picture and that, that that's great. Well, I'm a Georgia boy too. So that's all nice right. to know we have that in common. Nice. Well, you know, 
this is our first episode of the season and we're hoping that our listeners by the end of this season and and I too I mean I need this conversation would have more of a holy confidence in the way that our hearts are moved as we enter into some tough topics and understanding, you know, what does the Bible have to say? What are essential principles, especially in the area of gender confusion? So I'm wondering, what would you say, maybe two, three key foundational biblical principles that we need to keep in mind when trying to talk about these type issues? Uh, In terms of uh, gender confusion, Mm. uh, is this in a pastoral setting, in a parenting setting, in a mm. ocean Well, setting. our listeners are, are, are workers, uh-huh. so people in their work environment, where you've got also the legal issues and yeah. the social issues going on, different than you might have at a church or your own family. Yeah, well, I, w- I would say this, um, you know, don't try to turn your place of work into a church, um, you know, unless your place of work is a church, and then you want it to be a church to, to the uttermost, um, you know, but if you're working at you know, Apple or Amazon or, you know, Disney or, you know, wherever it is that you're working, your job isn't to turn that place into the church uh, and, and to place on your colleagues expectations that a church would put on people. Your your job is to work at what you do with all your heart and be the most life-giving, you know, boss or employee or colleague that you can possibly be as a representation of the life-giving presence of Christ in every sphere. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, in, encountering things like gender confusion in the neighborhood or in the workplace or otherwise, we have to start with, um, you know, the unassailable truth that every human being is created in the image of God. Uh, that, in, that includes men and women and boys and girls with, with gender confusion, gender dysphoria, and the like. Uh, it includes, um, you know, people who have, um, you know, identified as LGBTQ on, on, on some level, some way, shape or form in some capacity. Everybody is in, in the image of God. And right along with that, everybody has fallen. Everybody's damaged. Uh, everybody's life has been on some level in a significant way, contaminated by the fall. And, um, you know, I, I think that fact, need, we, we need to apply that first to ourselves. And we need to ask the question, where am I sexually confused? You know, where, where does my life demonstrate signs of, of sexual brokenness or sexual confusion or uh, brokenness or confusion in some other area of life? Um, I think the other thing, too, is is to um, to make sure that we, um, we we don't give a pass to um, you know acceptable differences uh, that 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 don't seem to square with the teaching of scripture you know acceptable differences like greed or, or like um, you know materialism or um, you know certain levels of anger and rage you know get a get a get a pass but but in this particular area of sexuality, um, you know, at least historically in the last couple of two, three decades, Christians have been especially, especially harsh in the public conversation and, and, and pretty targeted. Um, you know, you know, why, why is, um, why are LGBTQ issues, um, such a, a deep concern when pornography, when heteropornography is so much more ubiquitous of an issue inside our pews 
when when marital infidelity and uh, unbiblical divorce are, are so much more rampant uh, in in our pews. And you know, I I, I can't help but think of of um, yeah, I think it was Peter who said judgment begins with the, the household of God, and, and or maybe that was Paul. I can't remember. Maybe they both said it, but. <laughs> Um, you know, Jesus said it, you know, logs and specks, you know, be sure to remove the log from your own eye before you start concerning yourself with the speck in somebody else's. Now, now, if, if you see a speck in my eye, I hope you'll help me remove it because a speck can lead to an infection and much greater damage, right? But, um, you know, I'm going to be a lot more receptive if, if you've, you know, gotten yourself to the humble place with the Lord um, and you come at, you come to me without coming at me. You know, you come to me as a fellow struggler in being human and a, a, a fellow uh, sinner, um, you know, saved by the grace of God. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the more you can come to me in your concern, if you have it as, as, an, as a human equal, um, you know, the, the more likely you're going to, you know, have a chance at getting through to my heart. Um, and these are issues where if, you, if we can't get through to somebody's heart, it doesn't matter how watertight our arguments are. Doesn't matter how watertight our doctrine is or our anthropology about human sexuality. Doesn't matter how watertight those things are. If you know, Paul's pretty explicit about that in 1 Corinthians 13. If if we do not have love, we have nothing, we are nothing, and we gain nothing. And we certainly won't gain somebody we're trying to persuade, um, you know, of, of a biblical vision of this or that if we don't do so with love as the driving factor. I've often given pastoral advice to folks that uh, reproof, accountability, is, is proportional to relationship. Uh, and I heard that in your statement just a minute ago, and uh, come to me without coming at me. Well, those that can come to me are those that I've grown in trust and respect. And a lot of times we're not so patient to let that unfold, and we want to be crusaders of a sort, love the person, and get to all the rest of it later. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, Jesus gives us, a, you know, a sequence, uh, you know, in, in so many different places, the account in John 8 of the woman caught in the act of adultery. I've always wondered why they didn't drag the man out in public either, uh, or in addition to her, right? Why was it just the woman that, that got made an example of and, and, and scolded, right? Um, but, you know, Jesus, first of all, protects her from people who want to, um, you know, from hypocrites who want to, who are not without sin and yet who want to treat her, um, you know, as the only sinner in the room. And meanwhile, Jesus is the one person in that equation that is without sin and who therefore is qualified to um, completely destroy any sinner, you know, in front of him. And he chooses instead to say to the woman, I do not condemn you. Um, and that, that's what he says first. And it's from that place, I do not condemn you, that, that he then says, now let's talk about, you know, your, um, your sexual um, life and your infidelity and all the rest. And, and let's talk about what it, what it could look like for you to leave your life of sin under the umbrella of having been forgiven, under the umbrella of not being condemned. Let's talk about what it looks like from that point forward to leave your life of sin. And, you, you know, you look at, you know, they taught us in seminary, you look at the letters of Paul and, and you know, you see this pattern where all the letters of Paul begin with indicatives before they go to imperatives. And the indicatives are like 
the identity statements, right? You're beloved, you're saints, you're called by God, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's from there that Paul then, you know, goes on to address life choices and more morality and ethics and Ten Commandment kind of things. Um, but the sequence really matters because if, if you reverse the sequence and you start with law instead of grace, you lose Christianity and you lose Jesus. You lose the whole, you lose the gospel. And when you lose the gospel, you lose the power of God uh, for salvation. And salvation includes sanctification. Salvation includes life change. Um, you lose the power of God when, just by virtue of reversing that sequence and starting with law as a condition to get to grace as opposed to grace as a precondition uh, for empowering somebody to keep the law. You know, Scott, I, everything you've said, of course, I would agree with. And I think most believers, if you've been on the pew for any period of time, would go, oh, yeah, none of that is new. But we seem to have this biblical amnesia when it comes to some of these issues and gender issues being one of them. How do we sort of police ourselves or help ourselves when it comes to not forgetting, you know, who we are um, as fallen individuals as well and understanding that, you know, there's a humility that needs to come with us uh, about all of our lives, not just this one area. Yeah, it's, I mean, again, it's the logs and specs teaching from Jesus. Um, you know, it's, it's the declaration from Jesus's half brother, James. I mean, could you imagine growing up with the perfect son of God uh, and constantly <laughs> comparing yourself to him and, you know, part of that is, you know, James gets to this, you know, arrives at this conclusion in adulthood. If, if you, you know, if anyone keeps the entire law of God, that's guilty of breaking it at just one point, he's guilty of breaking all of it. Um, there's just absolutely no way to not fall short of the glory of God in every single facet of our lives. And, and yet it's the recognition of that, that actually, begins the process of getting better and becoming more holy. I mean, just think about the Apostle Paul and, and how his self-awareness um, changes over time where, um, you know, at the beginning of his you know, ministry as an apostle, he refers to himself as Paul an apostle. And then later on, He's Paul, the least of the apostles. And then later on, he's Paul, the least of all the saints. And at the end of his life and ministry, which is, you know, at the peak of his sanctification and the peak of his virtue and holiness, he's the chief of sinners. It's almost as if, you know, our, our growing awareness of the gap that exists between God's holiness and, and our lack of it, uh, the, the bigger that gap gets, um, you know, the, you know, the, it seems like the more humble we get and the more um, faithful we get in the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control. It's like this, this relationship, this, this congruent relationship between humble self-awareness uh, and um, the power of God to change us. Hmm. Scott, that gap is something that um, I think is that's, really telling. I heard it in the few principles that you mentioned originally, the Imago Dei in us all, and that all 
fall short. So when I'm uh, speaking with someone or even recognizing this in myself, and this person is other, different, has a, a different politics, or maybe is using different pronouns than I would uh, understand them to most appropriately use, mm-hmm. um, there is a, ten- a tendency to other them and not to recognize, wait a minute, they're still Imago Dei. And then there's a tendency to decrease my own sin and not fully embrace that. And you're so right that if we can reverse those two, ah, see the Imago Dei in others and see the tendency to sin in me, it does, it does bring about that humility. Can you point to an experience in your life maybe where that sort of exchange took place and it led you to perhaps be more Christ-like? Uh, that sort of exchange in terms of um, recognizing other... someone's humanity, as the world might put it, but to recognize the image of God even in them. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll reverse it and and you know talk about how my wife is so quick to recognize the image of God in me and. Um, you know, a, a, a shattered soul who is gradually being put back together by the mercies of God. Um, you know, when, when my flaws are exposed, you know, in front of the person who knows me better than anybody else, her, um, you know, I, she clearly, you know, will get frustrated with me in, in the same way that any spouse uh, or roommate or, you know, somebody living up close, parent, child will get um, with the flaws and weaknesses and shortcomings and sins of, of the people that they've been called to live with, you know, she'll always do it with the recognition that God has me in a process. And so she'll, she'll speak with compassionate, loving concern. She'll, she'll have an empathy. She won't just you know, address the behavior, but she'll say, you know, I know where this is coming from, uh, you know, because I know you, I know that, that there are, there are unfinished parts of you deep down that, that are leading you to respond to this scenario in this unhelpful way. And so how do we have a conversation about all of that? Um, and so, you know, that I, I would just say, you know, my wife, my own wife, you know, Patty Sauls is a great example of that. Um, you know, and I think, you know, for me, I, I've got a, I've got a special soft spot and um, extraordinary amount of patience for people who act out um, maybe with anxiety or with, um, you know, disproportionate reactionary behaviors to this or that. Um, if they have, especially if they have an abuse story, um, mm. you know, in their history, if they were, especially if they were sexually abused or if they were subject to, you know, physical violence from a, uh, an authority figure who was supposed to protect them and not be a threat to them or, um, you know, shaming words pronounced over them, damning words pronounced over them, uh, you know, that shaped and formed them. I have a, I have next level compassion for that person um, because I also am that person uh, in, in every way. And, and you know, there, there's this place in Hebrews that talks about how Jesus is not unable to sympathize 
uh, with our weakness um, because he's been te tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, except without sin. Um, I think if we've walked a path, you know, that another hurting person has walked, you know, that just the capacity for empathy grows for obvious reasons. Um, but, um, but I'm also not perfect. You know, I, I, I also miss a lot in, in those opportunities. You know, there in your new book, uh, there's a great quote that says true words are more easily received and metabolized when offered in a setting of empathy, understanding, and love. Mm -hmm. Now your current book is not on gender um, identity issues, but that quote certainly applies to your comments earlier about how we need to be more compassionate and more empathetic. I would love for you to talk about how do we do that? I think some people feel like, well, when they do that, then now all of a sudden they're endorsing that behavior or that sin and they can't get it ordered properly in their mind or in their thinking. And if they can't do that, then they're not going to get it ordered right in their heart probably. And so could you talk a little bit about that and help us understand how we kind of bridge that um, and give us some better categories by which to think about that? Yeah, it's a it's a messiah complex. Um, you know, <laughs> since when did the Holy Spirit um assert that he needs us and and our control over over a situation and a person in order to get his job done uh in their lives. Um you know, the method that that Christ has given us is um to come into every situation full of grace and full of truth. And um, because that's how Jesus came into every situation. But, but we also have to add to that, we come into every situation full of grace and full of truth as Jesus did, while also recognizing that we are not Jesus. Uh, we are not the Christ. Uh, we are not in charge of uh, or responsible for somebody else's choices and decisions and journey. We're responsible for showing up and for being the aroma of Christ as best as we possibly can. And last I checked, the only people that Jesus seemed to shout down were the people who were prone to shout other people down. Uh, you know, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scolders, the shamers, uh, Jesus did not hold back um, eviscerating prophetic words for the scolders and the shamers because they were hypocrites. Uh, but I look at the way that Jesus interacts with, with sexually broken, sexually damaged people, prostitutes, um, woman caught in the act of adultery, you know, the, the woman, you know, who, you know, the sexually immoral woman in Luke chapter seven, uh, you know, you know, just the, the way that Rahab is, you know, included in in his lineage and his genealogy, which was considered your resume. It wasn't what you've done. It was who you were from that credentialed you to society. And Rahab gets put in there. Tamar, a sexual assault victim, gets put in there. Bathsheba, another assault victim, um, you know, uh, you know, and so on. Um, you know, they're all there in the, the lineage. It just appears that Jesus... Well, it doesn't just appear. Jesus is incredibly tender and non-confrontational <laughs> with, with people who have sexual 
pain and immorality and sin, especially those outside the church. Uh, and and then you go to Paul and, and people say, well, what about Paul? You know, expel the wicked person from among you. Well, there's a context there in that very same chapter of First Corinthians. I think it's First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 5. I can't remember which one. But he goes on this whole, you know, you know, you know, teaching trail of, um, you know, if there's somebody who is among you within your fellowship who is pridefully uh, and boastfully sexually immoral, then deal with that sin and expel that person from your midst. And it, it's, it's just as much the pride and the, the high-fiving about, you know, you know, you know, assaulting the law of God and the commands of God and the good design of God, uh, you know, w- without a conscience. It's just as much about the pride as it is about the violation of the adultery commandment. Um, but, but, but he says, by the way, Paul says, I'm not at all talking about people who are outside of the church and who have sexual immorality in their lives. God has called to judge those outside the church. And so, so it really isn't Christian's place. It's not our calling. It's not our responsibility to, to go out into the world and try to fix people with the law of God. Um, we go out into the world, um, last I checked, in love and, um, you know, trying to, you know, find and take every opportunity that we can to be life-giving neighbors to all of our neighbors and, and let that be our platform. Um, you know, make it your goal first to live so persuasively and so compelling, compellingly in your own personal integrity and in your own life of love that people can't help but ask you um, what makes you tick. And then you know you're ready to start preaching to them. Um, and, and, and if, if you get to that point with somebody, you're going to preach to them well, um, you know, because you, you've done the good work of, of prioritizing loving your neighbor as yourself above fixing your neighbor, which is never your job. Um, and, and so, you know, Madeline Lingle has this great quote, um, you know, she says, uh, you know, we draw people to Christ, not by, you know, shouting them down and telling them how right we are and how wrong they are. We draw people to Christ, she says, by showing them a light that is so lovely that they can't help but ask what makes the difference for us. And and hmm. and so I think that's a pretty good um it's a pretty good vision statement for what it means to hmm. to go outside of the church walls especially uh and engage our neighbor. Now inside the church um you know again love love is what we lead with. Um, and you know, all confrontation, if, if I'm reading Galatians six and Matthew 18 correctly, all confrontation is also done out of redemptive loving concern for the person that we're pursuing. Um, and you know, the church is never meant to be a forum to shame and scold. Um, but to win your brother, I think is the, or to win your sister, I think is the language that Jesus uses in Matthew 18. That's the goal of, of redemptive conflict of, of, of all sorts. 
Scott, could you share a, a story or a situation where you've walked with someone through their sexual or gender brokenness and not that it necessarily ended maybe where we might have hoped, but yet you were there to walk with them? Yeah, I'll, I'll preface this with, um, if, you know, if you've got, let's just, let's just narrow it down to the letters that we have right now, LGBTQ, and we won't, we won't look, to, we won't look to the plus and speculate where the plus is going, but LGBTQ, um, I, I think inside the church, it's important to recognize or, or inside our families for that matter, if somebody has begun to go down that road and claim that identity statistically, the, the very, very strong likelihood is you're not going to win them back to, to you know, a, a traditional, historic, biblical ethic of sex and marriage. And so I think we have to prepare to lose the debate uh, and, and to lose the, um, you know, the, the persuasive, um, you know, endeavor or, or effort that, that we're going to make to try to draw somebody back into, um, you know, the, the teaching of scripture on these things. Um, and by be prepared to lose the debate, you don't mean capitulate on your convictions. Not at all. I don't mean capitulate. Uh, I mean, mean? Share, share your convictions, but don't, don't turn your love for the other person into something that is conditional on whether or not they get on board with your convictions, because in mm. all likelihood, you're just going to keep making enemies. And you could say that statement about so many in today's polarized world. No, you, you really can. But I, you know, one, one example um, was this, this young woman who came into my office, you know, asked for a meeting and, and um, you know, I know her well enough to know that, that she, um, you know, she was attracted to women and, 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 you know, that had become a, a real struggle, you know, just the conflict that that, that, that created with her faith, um, you know, and she comes into my office, you know, sets up a meeting and just says, you know what, I, I, I want to do two things. First, I want to thank you um, for um, being the kind of church that, that, that um, is unapologetic about your convictions on on sexuality and marriage and such. Um, and she, she, you know, she, she used some flowery language. She says, you know, I don't buy any of that BS out there, uh, where people are trying to make the Bible say something that it's never said about sex and marriage. And she goes on to say like, like, doesn't it dawn on any of us that the whole notion that, 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 that the whole world everywhere for all of history has, has interpreted the Bible wrong. And now we white Western, uh, under the age of 40, um, mostly affluent Americans have suddenly discovered the truth that nobody else has ever been able to see. And the truth is precisely the opposite of what the Bible actually says in plain language. Uh, she says, I think that's BS. Uh, but she didn't abbreviate. She just, she says, I, <laughs> I know it's BS. And so I want to thank you for not, for not capitulating to the BS. And I want to thank you that you've been able to not capitulate to the BS while also creating a space where somebody like me knows that I'm loved and that I'm welcome. And, and, and then I'm also warned about receiving communion um, when, when my ethics are in conflict with, with the ethic of Christ on, on any area of life. And so she, she's thanking us for basically being biblical in, in our preaching and, and trying to 
you know, see to it that the the preaching translates into the culture. That 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 you know, my pre- one of my predecessors, uh, Ray Orland, talks about gospel doctrine that leads to gospel culture, and and you know, she was thanking me for that, um, and and calling the bluff of those who are trying to change the narrative of scripture. Uh, but then, but then she says, um, you know, I, at the same time, I, I also feel like I need to confess to you that that I'm I'm in a relationship and I have been, and I I, I candidly like when when I hear happily married old couples talk about how they can't live without each other, that's how I feel. Like it resonates with how I feel about this woman that I'm with, and I I just I don't know. It feels like I'm in a place where I have to either go with my faith or with, with this relationship. And I just, I, I don't know how, uh, I can, like, I feel like I will be condemned for the rest of my life if I don't pursue this relationship. And yet I know that Jesus is a God of grace. And so, and so she's wrestling through all of this stuff. And, um, you know, I prayed for her and I stuck to the, the biblical historic ethic. And I said, look at, you know, on the other side of faithfulness, uh, God always has surprises on the other side of obedience. But but obedience is something that we have to sometimes painfully step into before we see the other side. Um, you know, just like God called Abraham to leave the home that he's familiar with and that he cherished and and, and just trust God for what's on the other side. Um, and, you know, she left, you know, thanking me, hugged her. You know, she's a server at a a restaurant here locally and my wife and I have, you know, made a point of going to the restaurant a little bit more often and requesting her table. And we've had some lovely interactions with her, you know, tip her, you know, twice as much as we would normally tip, you know, just to (laughs) communicate love to her. Um, And so the relationship has never been lost, but the church lost her, you know, she stopped coming to church, you know, she made her choice and, you know, kind of like the rich ruler, right. Where, you know, it says that, you know, when he made his choice, he, he walked the other way, but, but Jesus didn't, didn't scorn him or, or despise him. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And it said that the man walked away sad. And so I think if those two things can, can be the goal of our church communities with respect to, to anyone who's, um, you know, just openly decides to remain out of accord with any, of the scriptures teaching. Let's, let's just take it out of the realm of sexuality for a minute and put it into other, other realms of, of moral compromise, like, you know, pornography use, like the idolatry of wealth and money and materialism and greed, you know, like all of these other, you know, acceptable, uh, as they call them, uh, because they're so ubiquitous. Um, you know, let's let it be our goal for the other person to know that even as they walk away, we love them. Uh, but as they walk away, they also walk away sad because they know they're walking away uh, from, um, you know, from something precious. Uh, and, and that's, you know, the, the safety of, of the community of Christ and the safety of faithfulness. I loved how you put that for the Lord's Supper. Where are my ethics at odds with the ethics of Christ? And that's a, I think a very up-to-date, relevant way of articulating what Paul's getting at in First Corinthians. Well, Crossland, uh, close us out with some spiritual formation insights. Well, Scott, it just occurred to me that um, 
you know, as we try to enter in, as you mentioned before, as we try to show up appropriately, can you talk about the importance of us keeping our own hearts, um, you know, the importance of exercising uh, spiritual disciplines in our own lives and the relevance of that. And um, I would just love to hear you talk about that for a few minutes, because I think that's sometimes missed in some of these conversations. Yeah, I think what's striking in these conversations um much more noticeably so than, than say even 10 years ago is oftentimes the complete absence of bringing scripture to the table in these conversations and asking the question, what does scripture say? Um, you know, and it, it represents, I think the shift, uh, from, um, you know, the, the, the idea that we all have a transcendent truth that comes to us from the outside, from our creator, to what the sociologists call expressive individualism, where we're now we're all running around with our own truth, um, you know, that comes with within us, and and the the faithful thing is to be true to yourself, um, and, and instead of you know asking the truth outside of yourself to revise and edit you, uh, you know, in order to get you in line with the one who created you, right? Uh, and so. Um, so these conversations, um, I'm sorry, Cross, I can't even remember what your question was. Um, it's really how to, if you would just talk about the relevance of keeping our own hearts. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to bring scripture to yeah. the table. We need to be in scripture. Yeah. To be We've got to get ourselves it. to the table with scripture. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, just that's, one example. But. Yeah, truly, we're we're not we're not going to be much help on the side of God if we're walking around the world, you know, biblically illiterate and taking our cues from from our culture and our feelings. And that, that's that's not a diss on our culture and our feelings. I think you know, culture at its best and our emotions at their best can be very fruitful, um, you know, resources that God has has given us, but. Everything has to be formed and informed by, by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and the, the way that he has chosen to make his grace and truth most readily and unassailably available to us is through the scriptures and especially in the context of, com of community and of working out what the scriptures teach together with others who, uh, you know, put the scriptures, you know, above themselves, uh, you know, and, and walk in community in that way as well. Um, you know, we're all, we're going to be all the better for that. Um, you know, we tell, we tell our people, um, you know, that if you want to, if you want to be the, the healthiest version of yourself and the most fruitful version of yourself, then, um, you know, be fully present with a local church every single Sunday of your life, you know, or organize your life around, local church life rather than, you know, letting local church life be something that you do if you've got no, no other better options available at the time. Uh, and uh, be fully present with Jesus through the scriptures every single day. Uh, and yeah. the good news is there, there are thousands of different ways that you can have a, that kind of relationship with scripture that, you know, each of which accommodates a certain kind of personality, right? Like, 
like the heady the heady types like the liturgical tradition with all those words and lots of chapters to read that's one approach you know the heart types um you know there's some wonderful devotionals that that can can sharpen your mind and also stir your heart but but you know there are all kinds of different ways to to get into the bible so the bible can get into you Scott, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having some time with us. I want to encourage our listeners to uh, go to scottsalls.com to read some more of his writings. Uh, become the 45,000th and first Twitter follower uh, at Scott Sauls. And uh, your new book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, we will have that in our show notes. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Wow, Case, what a fun, fun conversation we've just had with Scott Sauls. There were some real nuggets of wisdom that I think were sprinkled throughout his conversation. I jotted a couple of them down. One was, our workplace is not the church. (laughs) So true. Such a great point. Don't overlook the acceptable sins like greed, Mm. anger, and adultery. Um, Without love, we are... Nothing. We're clanging symbols. We're ineffective. We're clanging symbols. And then love your neighbor. Don't fix Mm. them. Man, that was really convicting. (laughs) I mean, yeah, like we think about neighbors as projects and that's so not good. People can read that a mile away. They can. They can. What were some of your, what was your takeaway from the conversation? The don't overlook the acceptable sins, greed, anger, adultery, et cetera. And, um, I've got a good friend and I was sharing with him about doing this season podcast and he got a little annoyed and said, why is the church always focus on the lightning rods and all the big stuff when there's so many other ways that we fall short? And I mean, he's not wrong. Um, We certainly do need to be mindful and absolutely following after Christ in even those ways. It matters. It's important. I would argue, you know, we kind of hit that stuff probably five out of seven Sundays. Um, but yes. we do need to address these cultural hot bucket issues, hot spot issues. Absolutely. Well, as you know, listeners, for this season, we are incorporating our spiritual formation into the very episodes themselves. And so I'm going to take some of those nuggets of Crossland, Crosslands and um, slowly repeat them in sort of a meditative way. And I'll leave some space between each one. And my encouragement for you, listeners, and Crossland and I will be doing this ourselves, is just to maybe in a prayerful way, repeat these phrases over to yourself and just see what comes up, what convicts, what encourages, and um, have a better sense of where the Lord may be leading you after this conversation. Okay? Let us pray. My workplace is not the church. My workplace is not the church. My workplace is not the church. Lord, may I not overlook those socially acceptable sins of greed, anger, adultery, and more. Lord, may I not overlook the socially acceptable sins of greed, anger, gluttony, adultery, and more. 
O Lord, may I not overlook the socially acceptable sins of greed, anger, gluttony, drunkenness, adultery, lust, and more. Without love, I am nothing. Without love, I'm nothing. Lord Jesus, without love, especially your love, I am nothing. I love my neighbor. I'm not trying to fix them. I love my neighbor. I'm not trying to fix them. I love my neighbor. Fill in the blank with their name. I'm not trying to fix them. Amen. Help us spread the word about nuance. Please like the episode, subscribe to our podcast, and share our link so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative and is made possible by the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Foundation. On behalf of Case Thorpe and myself, thank you for joining the conversation.